Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is the fifth chapter of Matthew, and we're now on what we call the sixth antithesis. And in the 43rd verse of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then, in predictable fashion, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Because, see, here's the implication. Jesus wants his disciples to do more than others, to distinguish themselves. He says, don't even the pagans do that? Verse 48, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there are questions that should arise in your mind, even as I read that, and one of the things we'll struggle with is when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and I suggest to you, perhaps, he has now at this point made the most demanding expectations upon us of anything he has spoken so far. He says we have to do more than what your average person would do. We have to do more than the pagans would do. And then we probably have a question about that last statement when he says, Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And once again, it seems like an overwhelming, daunting challenge to us. So this is where we're going to dwell today for the next few moments to try and figure out what Jesus is saying to us, what our response should be to that, how we put these things into practice in our life. Now, in these six antitheses, Jesus has unquestionably placed extraordinary challenges on the shoulders of his disciples. He challenges them to forsake their traditional way of thinking and adopt a new mindset. How many of you people will agree and understand how difficult it is to change people's traditional way of thinking? I face that challenge as a pastor with the congregation, not only in this church, but in any church I've ever pastored. As you try to bring spiritual correction and alignment in their thoughts, theories and their thinking and their philosophy and their theology and when you come up against people that says but this is the way we've always done it this is what we've always believed this is what I've always heard then you sometimes come to an impasse you're not going to change traditional thinking because that's our comfort zone 
But I will tell you this. We have strayed from what the Bible teaches us to say and to do and to think, largely because we are very accustomed to our Western mentality. And we've blended our Western mentality, our culture, our way of thinking, with our Christianity and came up with our own concoction. And so Jesus could very easily be speaking to us like he was speaking to his disciples when he said, you've done this this, all, this way all of your life. You have believed it. You have heard it. You have practiced it. You have repeated it. But I'm telling you, this is the way it ought to be. Keep your hearts and minds open. Now, just to quickly recap where we've been on this, and it just take me a minute or so to do it. First, Jesus moves our accountability before God from merely being outward actions to matters of the heart. He's taking it on the inside. So therefore, you may not be a murderer, but if you thought hateful thoughts, you're guilty of being a murderer. You may not have committed adultery, but if you've had lustful thoughts you've, you've entertained, you are guilty of being an adulterer. He's moved that from just outward actions to a matter of the heart. Second, he rebukes the Jews for drifting away from God's original intent and purpose for marriage. And their failure in their commitment to the one man, one woman marriage that, that God instituted. And if that's not a relevant topic for today, I don't know what is. He emphatically urges them to stop the practice of dissolving marriages over petty issues and get back to commitment, lifetime devotion between husband and wife. Then the third thing he does in, in these antitheses is he basically refashions, rewrites the law on retribution. You've heard it said all your life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. He says, we're not going to do that anymore. If you're going to be my followers, we're not going to live by that principle. And so he's really challenging them. But you know, when he gets down to this sixth antithesis that I have just read, this has to be the most difficult challenge that he has issued. This has to be a turning point or a watershed moment for his disciples. Jesus is all the time challenging people whether it is really worth it in their estimation to follow him or not. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And the whole symbolic essence of that is it's going to be difficult if you follow me. You cannot just act upon your impulses if you follow me. You have to be guided by a higher principle than what you find in this world or you find in your instinct. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, we're going to do things entirely differently. That in itself seems overwhelming to me. But when Jesus gets down to this last one, after having taken us through these other five and just shaking us and turning our world upside down on all these other subjects, then he hits us with the hardest one, where he says, you've heard it said all your life, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I mentioned this a few sermons ago. This is the one antithesis where that was not a direction and an instruction from God. This is where they had perverted the Word of God. They were taught under the Torah, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, to love their neighbor. That was a directive from God. But somewhere along the line, somebody added to that 
and said, you have a moral obligation not only to love your neighbor, but to hate your enemy. Can you think of any modification or change that anybody could make to the Word of God that would be more of an affront to the truth of God than to take the simple love your neighbor and add, and if you really want to be a good Jew... If you really want to serve God, if you really want to please Him, you have a moral obligation to hate your enemy. And they lived by that code. So Jesus addresses that. He said, you've heard it said all your life. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And He said, I'm going to correct that. You are not to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You are to love your neighbor and love your enemy. Now, in order for us to make an application of this, We have to understand two things. Who is our neighbor? And you remember a story in the Bible that describes that, don't you? And we also have to understand who is my enemy. And probably along the same lines, I said two things. We probably have to understand what do you mean love them? How do we love them? So here's this this culture These people from this background where they have justified hating their enemy. And it's against this background that Jesus now challenges them and say, that's not the way my disciples are going to behave. So let's get down to working on some of these terms and concepts so we can unravel this for us today. There's two questions. One is, who is my neighbor? One is, who is my enemy? And both of these questions, if they were asked by the Jews, are designed to be loophole questions. How many of you have ever known somebody that looked for loopholes in their Christianity? Here's a loophole. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Yeah, but I've only got two cheeks. That's a loophole. Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7. Okay, that's 490, but on the 491st, you're going to get it. That's a loophole. People love loopholes. So whenever they ask this probing question, who is my neighbor, that was a loophole question. We find this concept of Loving the neighbor, this command to loving the neighbor, it's, it comes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. There it is in the Torah. So now, since they've been given a direct command in the Torah, which they honored and revered. Now they start messing around with the definition of neighbor. Wiggle room. Loophole. And in the 10th chapter of Luke, we find this famous discourse between the expert in the law. Of course, it was the Mosaic law, not civil laws like we will. But we could call him a lawyer because he's an expert in the law. This lawyer comes to Christ, and he asks what I have to believe was probably a very sincere question. He comes and asks Christ, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, why don't you give me your opinion about how 
you inherit eternal life. And the lawyer says, well, uh, I believe you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I believe you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, very good. That is a great answer. And then comes the loophole. As the lawyer says to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Because if they're not my neighbor, I don't have to love them. This expert in the law had perfectly and correctly identified the two key scriptures. But now he's going to play with semantics and definitions. And now you see the evidence of how the Jews complicated and manipulated the scriptures and the issues. Well, I'm not going to go into great detail about this discourse between Jesus, but you know what that led to. It led to Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. I've told you before, the end of that story is not where Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, but he ends up with a question and, a, and says, and who was neighbor to that man? So it's not just a matter of who is my neighbor, it's a matter of action on my part. I'm responsible to God for how I treat other people. Who will I make my neighbor, bring into my circle? That's really the question that Jesus throws back on them. Now, the Jews were divided on the issue of who their neighbor was. It's pretty obvious they didn't have a whole lot of use for the Samaritans. The Samaritans were that group of people that had kind of broken off from the Jews uh, years before. And the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They, they became uh, idolatrous. And even though they had the common root, common heritage, in Jesus' days, a Samaritan was disrespected by the Jews. So, therefore, Jesus was really rubbing salt in the wounds when he tell this, tells this story about the Samaritan being the hero. But the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite being the ones that failed miserably in ministering to the man who had been wounded and left for dead. So he takes the despised Samaritan and makes him the hero of the story, and that really got under their skin. Who's my neighbor? Well, for the Jews, typically, any other Jew was a neighbor. A Gentile was not. And the neighbor might be a Jew, but if that Jew sometimes, in some people's minds, belonged to a different sect, then they weren't a neighbor. Are you a Pharisee? Are you a Sadducee? Are you an Essene? What are you? Because if you're not what I am, you might not be my neighbor. Or, if you weren't necessarily from their tribe, they could get pretty snooty too. So they had different ways of assessing who they would choose to be their neighbor. No wonder the lawyer wanted Christ to be more specific about who's to be considered our neighbor because they were divided in this issue in the Jewish culture and, and they couldn't uh, monolithically agree on who should be their neighbor so they could fulfill the Old Testament law contained in the, in, in, in the Torah, in the law of Moses. Love your neighbor. Now they're spending their whole life trying to figure out who is my neighbor. And the second question that would logically come to mind is who's my enemy? 
there's no consensus among the Jews about their neighbor or their enemy. They sometimes treated Gentiles with civility. Even Scripture in the Old Testament encouraged them to treat Gentiles with civility. But there were Jews, to the Jews, there were Jews and others. There were Jews and everybody else, Jews and Gentiles. And some Jews might consider them a neighbor, or they might consider them an enemy. They were just other people. And so Bible scholars struggle with this passage. Did the Jews truly believe that hating their enemy was their moral duty of loving, uh, as much as loving their neighbor? We, I mean, we read in Psalm 139, starting in the 19th verse, if only you, God, would slay the wicked... Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent, and your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, honestly, people, how many of you have prayed a similar prayer from time to time? After all, it's in the Bible. It's a psalm for crying out loud. The psalmist said, God, if you could just kill all my enemies, how much better life would be for me. On the other hand, if the Jews truly believed they were not only justified, but even obligated to hate their enemies, then we can be certain that they, they didn't get that from God because God never did command them to hate their enemies. So there's another alternative to consider here, and that is hate was a common expression in the Hebrew culture as a term of preference. Uh, in the Old Testament, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I despised? Have I hated? It doesn't translate well into other languages because of the current firm conviction we have about the word hate. So if we don't understand the way that the Hebrews would use that just as a term of preference, we come away saying, how can God hate Esau and be so against us hating anybody? So see, there's, a, there's something about understanding how these languages work and how the words are used and how it doesn't translate well. It's very clumsy coming over into our language. Or Jesus could have been addressing the, the Essenes, a Jewish sect, who had separated themselves to live in com communes, and they practiced their own little specific version of Judaism. As a matter of fact, there's many documents discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls that attest to the Essenes' commitment. Commitment! It was a part of their religion, their commitment to hate all their enemies, and especially hate the Romans. And that would have been common knowledge to the disciples. So when Jesus says to his disciples, that you've heard it been said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The disciples would have known that there were people who justified hating the enemy and hating the Romans. The Romans were their enemies. And it doesn't make any difference, really, which of these would, would best define this passage. The fact that Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies, was a total bombshell. No matter who we are, all of us, know of people we don't care a whole lot about. Most of us 
know people that we have no desire to be around. Most of us know somebody when we are in the same building, in the same room with somebody. We're just sick to our stomach because they are there. They have that kind of effect on us. And we could probably say to some degree, we hate those people, but we don't like to say that. So uh, we'll say something soft like, well, I don't hate them. I just, just uh, I love them enough to get to heaven is all. But I hate what they do. Or at least to some degree, we hate the very thought of being in their presence. Now, you know we struggle with that. And Jesus directs us to love our neighbor. Okay, if I can figure out who my neighbor is, I think I can do that one. But when he turns around and he slaps me with, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, now I'm struggling, people. And you are too. Because the one person you despise so much in your life that you have these ill feelings about Jesus is directing this to you. The Holy Spirit is directing this to you today that you've got to figure out what he means when he says love your enemies. And somehow you want to scramble to put them on another list besides enemies so you don't have to love them. It's not going to work like that. So we then ask the question, we've asked, who's my neighbor? We've asked, who's my enemy? Now we've got to say, well, what do you mean love? Because we're still looking for wiggle room. And this is going to be one of the hardest things for us to process. So we're going to take baby steps to get there. First of all, Jesus said, love your enemies. He meant much more than tolerate. Can you get that? You cannot tolerate and think you are fulfilling the directive Jesus has given. We almost make that automatic translation in our minds, don't we? Love your enemies. Well, I will tolerate them today. I will not talk to them, but I will not beat them silly. So therefore, I will tolerate them. And surely God will honor my efforts to love my enemy. It's far more than toleration. At the bare minimum, I said we're going to take baby steps. At the bare minimum, loving your enemy starts with pray for them. Now we have to define what it means for prayer. To pray for them because we are just still in that loophole mentality. I'll pray for them. Lord, kill them. <laughs> there. Our prayers are not to be like, uh, I'm going to go to the 109th Psalm. And I'll just summarize it. I'm not going to read it for you. There, the, the psalmist in that one, he had it bad. And he prays. He said, God, appoint somebody to oppose my enemy. I want more people to hate them with me. The more we can get to hate them, the better I'm going to feel about it. Let's all hate them together. He prays, Lord, make my enemies' days very few. You know what that means? Kill them. May they die this week. The world would be better off without them. He prays. Lord, let his children be fatherless and let his wife be a widow. Let his children become beggars and the creditors come take everything from him. Pray, God, I pray, I pray, nobody treats him nice. Nobody extends kindness to my enemy. 
And I pray most of all, God, that his sins remain forever unforgiven. Now this guy had it bad. That's not praying for enemies. And praying for enemies, for our enemies, is not just a personal practice that's intended to curb our own anger and keep us from wanting to kill them. Praying for our enemies means praying for their salvation, praying for their spiritual transformation. Praying for our enemies means doing spiritual warfare in order to see reconciliation and peace. And that's only the first baby step. That does not completely fulfill the obligation of loving your enemies. That's only where you start. You've got to get your prayer life fixed first. You who hate those other people so much, despise them so much because what they have done to you, how they have hurt you, you cannot stand them. You wrestle and struggle to refrain and restrain from physically harming these people. And you've got to start with being able to pray and say, God, as much as I hate them, I want to pray that somehow you get a hold of them, you transform them, you make my enemy my brother or my sister. That's where you start, but you're not there yet. Don't you wish that's all there was to it? Because we could go to our prayer closet and we could pray that prayer and come out and say, I'm all right with God. But it's not enough. You've got more to do if you're going to love your enemy. Because love is more than praying. It's taking action. And I I can sense the sinking feeling right now as we said I was afraid you were going to say that. Loving our enemies means that we are willing to be that person in the enemy's life that helps guide them to the place where they finally find God's purpose in their life. It means you are willing to be the positive influence. It means you are willing to be the light in the darkness. It means you are willing to be God's hands and God's mouthpiece. We see evidence of this kind of love put in action in Scripture when Jesus hung on the cross and he prayed for his persecutors while he was on the cross. We see evidence of this. When Stephen was being stoned by the angry mob, all Stephen did was preach Jesus Christ. That's all he did. And when he came to the point of saying, this Jesus, this Son of God, this Messiah that was sent into this world, you are the people that you murdered him. You murdered your own Messiah. They took up the stones and they were going to stone him to death. And there, falling to his knees beneath the crushing blows of the stones, the very last words out of the mouth of Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them and when writing the church at Rome and the church at Corinth and the church at Thessalonica Paul urges them the same way he says in the book of Romans bless those that persecute you He says to the Corinthians, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. He writes to the Thessalonians and says, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. And Polycarp, the second century bishop of Smyrna, an early church martyr, wrote a letter to the Philippian church, and he tells them, pray for all the saints. Pray also for kings and powers and rulers. 
and for those who persecute you and hate you. Pray for the enemies of the cross in order that your fruit may be evident among all people that you may be perfect in him. And he comes back to this annoying concept of being perfect. It's what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be perfect. And we're gagging on the very thought of having to do this. What motivation? Why should I do this? I'm sure that's the same question every one of us are going to ask of ourselves. Why? Why should I do this? Maybe I don't want to do this. Give me a want to. Justify why I should love my enemies. Jesus said that you may be children of your heavenly Father. Very short phrase. You know what that translates into? You know what it means if you're not a child of the Father? Is everybody spiritually mature enough to interpret that? Isn't this kind of code for saying if you really want to go to heaven, if you really want eternal life, if you really want to please God, if you want to be accepted of Him, if you want to be a child of God, you've got to do this. You have to do this. If you want to please God, if you want to be His child, God says, love your enemies, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. It's difficult for us to discipline ourselves to do that which is not natural or convenient without proper motivation. I have to be motivated. Why should these disciples want to follow Jesus Christ? Many were inspired to follow Jesus because of the excitement he stirred whenever he performed the supernatural miracles, healed the blind eyes, making the lifetime cripples walk and dance, raising the dead, curing the lepers, and everybody wanted to be there to see that. They took time off from work. They took a sabbatical. They followed him around. There was no telling when he was going to do another one of those miraculous things. They wanted to be there. They wanted to see it. It was exciting. They gathered around him because they heard strange and exciting things happen. If you just follow him, you'll get to see five loaves of bread and two fishes broken to feed 5,000 people. Don't you wish you would have been there? You shouldn't have missed it. You should have followed him. They were excited. That's why they followed him. They followed him because he was the most compelling orator they had ever heard. He was nothing like the Pharisees. He was nothing like the priests. They had grown accustomed to hearing these boring old people. And Jesus comes along stirring people up in hope. Putting hope in the hopeless. He told the most fascinating stories with powerful moral lessons. Never a man spoke like this man. They hung on every word. They followed him into the desert. They followed him to the seashore. Wherever he went, he came into town. They gathered around him. They thronged him. They were drawn to him every once in a while he would have a confrontation with the Jewish scholars I said the scholars I said the ones who knew the Old Testament scripture like nobody else the scholars the experts and every time he had a confrontation with the experts they went away whining like a kindergartner they couldn't deal with him they couldn't compete with him he outsmarted them every time they tried to trap him they couldn't do it never a man spoke like this man they wanted to follow him he was mesmerizing people flocked to him by the thousands there were plenty of reasons to take a few days off to take a week off to take a couple of weeks off and follow this man around just to be there 
There were rumors he was the Messiah. There were rumors he had come to set them free from Roman bondage. And then when he begins to teach his disciples this new way of thinking, when he reprograms them from traditional Judaism into this new heavenly ethics, then we have to wonder why they wanted to follow him. They were comfortable with their old religion. It seemed to get the job done for them. Why live a life where the outward ethics now had been moved into the heart? Why let this man accuse them of being virtual murderers and adulterers? Why follow such a man if he's going to be that sensitive? Why follow a man who refuses to allow themselves to defend themselves when they're attacked? Why follow a man who tells them if you're conscripted to go a mile, go two miles? Why follow this man? There is nothing appealing about doing this. Why follow a man that says if they smite you on the cheek, turn the other cheek? Why follow a man that tells them that not only have they lost their love for their neighbor, but they are now going to have to love their enemy? Why? Why follow him? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. And the Holy Spirit smites us with a heaviness today that we thought it was so much easier to love God. I just thought it was kind of about acknowledging there's a God up there somewhere, praying to him once in a while, defending him if somebody says there isn't a God, defending it passionately, and and just believing that when I die I'm going to go to heaven. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to quit behaving like this world behaves. You're going to quit responding like you've grown up thinking you should respond. And you're going to do it like I want you to do it. That you may be truly children of the Heavenly Father. If you don't do it, you can't be His children. Now that's the question for us today. How important is it for you to be a child of the Heavenly Father? If it really doesn't matter you will never find justification for trying to live by the kingdom ethics, the ethics from the above, the ethics from heaven. You, you cannot justify that because it doesn't matter to you if you're a child of God or not. But if it matters to you, you have all the motivation it takes to try and do the very best you can. A lot of people didn't have that motivation. It didn't matter to them to be the child of God. So many of his disciples walked away, but 12 disciples... It mattered to them. They cared whether they were children of the Most High God. They stayed with Him. They were motivated. They realized that the motivation was this has to do with eternity. This has to do with the condition of my soul when I stand before God. They cared about that. How important is it to you that you may be the children of your Father in Heaven? How important is that to you? Is your eternal destiny important to you? If you have no interest in trying to incorporate these kingdom ethics into your life, it doesn't matter to you. It'd be foolish, furthermore, to try and live by these ethics if it doesn't matter to you if you're a child of God. You'd be ridiculous to try and live like this. I just spoke with a man the other day who told me, He's not a Christian, but he says, I try to live by Christian ethics. And I didn't say anything. 
But the first thing that comes to my mind is how miserable it must be not to be a Christian, not to be saved, not to want to be a child of God, but to think you're going to live by these morals and these principles. You are most miserable. if you try. There is no motivation to do this. If it doesn't mean eternal life, and you don't care anything about eternal life, quit trying to live like a Christian. It just doesn't work. I know we labor tirelessly for the things that are important to us. What's important to you? If having enough money to buy a decent house, drive a decent car, pay your bills, eat out once in a while, if that's important to you, you're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to work an extra job. You're going to put in extra hours You're going because that's important. And you will give yourself and you will dedicate yourself if that's what you want. How important is it to you? to retire with something so you don't retire a pauper. If that's important to you, you're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to live a a very frugal life and save your money until the time you retire so you won't retire broke. You will discipline yourself to do that if that's important to you. But if you want eternal life, you have to devote yourself to that goal with everything that is within you. And that means when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, this is what you're going to have to do, and this is how you're going to have to think, you're not going to just pass that off and say, I don't want to live like that. I don't care to live like that. I don't care anything about going to heaven. I don't care anything about hearing him say, well done. I just don't want to be inconvenienced like that. I want to live in this life like I want to live, period. I don't want God interfering with my philosophies, my ideas, my comfort zone. But if you want to be a child of God, you will do whatever it takes to live like Jesus said we ought to live. We come to that final question. He, now he's told us to love our enemies, which we're still struggling with that one. Then he throws this one on. And he said, as a matter of fact, be perfect. Just like your heavenly father is perfect. And that's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't want to do the first one. I can't do the second one. It, it, this, is, this is a lost cause. Unless we understand what the word perfect means. So this casual, superficial reading of this passage leaves us frustrated because of our own misunderstanding of the word perfect. What did he mean when he said be perfect? So scanning a few of the the commentators, the highlights from some of the commentators, highly respected commentators on this passage, there's a strong consensus that there are two implied characteristics in the word perfection as Jesus used the term. The first one is being perfect means loving the way God loves. And second, being perfect means obeying his commands. Now, forget what you think perfect means in the English language. You've got to go back to what it meant as he used this and as it's used in other scriptures and as you understand what Jesus was teaching, loving God and obeying God. The word perfect, once again, I don't want, don't want to bore you with root words and 
Greek and Hebrew, but it might be worthwhile to understand that that Greek word that is used there is not really the word that came out of Jesus' mouth. He wasn't speaking Greek. Uh, he would have spoken Aramaic. If there was a Hebrew word, it may have been used, but we don't know what that word was. We know when they, when they took the words of Jesus and wrote it down in Greek, they chose a Greek word that they thought best described what he spoke in this other language. So we, already we have a translation problem. So they go back and they think, well, what could he possibly have said in Hebrew or Aramaic? What could he possibly, word could he have possibly used? And what does that word mean? And so we go back and we find these words that possibly, most likely, Jesus would have used, and it means unblemished or whole. And that's the one we zero in on, whole, complete. And so this perfection, referring to loving like God loves and being obedient to his commands, means that that's what makes us complete. This element of completeness leads us to understand that loving like God loves means we're not selective in our love. We don't just love neighbors and hate enemies. It means we love our neighbor and we love our enemies. It, it means we cover the entire spectrum of humanity. Who are we not to love in Scripture? Complete and perfect love applies to everybody. And once again, this is the most challenging of all the directives. He gives in this passage that I have to somehow learn this unearthly skill of loving my enemies, which I don't know I'm prepared to do that. Are you? Well, I'm going to try, but I'm honest enough to look down in my heart and I see these faces popping up in my brain. I get these visions of these people that I have to now love that I was perfectly happy hating them up until this point. All was great. It was my, it was my, my release in my life to hate the hateful. And now Jesus wades in. He says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to learn how to love the despicable. Why? Oh, you want to be a child of God? <laughs> Oh, he has a way of cornering you, doesn't he? So I argue, and you do too, this is not practical, God. No, it's not. This is not natural, God. No, it's not. It's not easy. No, it's not. It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. But maybe on this Sunday morning, more timely... And relevant words could never be spoken than to speak these words today. Here in our country, we hardly bear witness to our name, the United States of America. We are quickly becoming the divided states of America. You know why? Because of hatred. Some pundits have suggested we've never been so divided as a nation since the Civil War. And many agree with that. We're divided by our politics. We're divided by our policies. There's racial divisions. The tensions are soaring. Evangelicals think Catholics are their enemies. Liberals think conservatives are their enemies. Are you pro-Israel or are you anti-Israel? We'll do a division of the house. Are you pro-abortion or you're anti-abortion? Do you support gay agenda or do you oppose it? Do you support transgender rights to use any bathroom? They feel like 
this week or do you oppose that? Are you pro-military or are you anti-military? Are you for using force or against using force? Are you for mass immigration of Muslim refugees refugees, or are you against them? Do you think we need to love the Muslim refugees or just kill them all and send them somewhere else? Do, are you for sanctuary cities? Yes or no? You for big government? You for little government? But these are a few of the issues that are splitting our nation apart. And if people don't agree with us, you're my enemy. We don't want to be around them. We can't have fellowship with them. Until we go through this checklist. And the longer the checklist gets, the less people we find that are right there in our little bubble. But Jesus came along and said, if you're going to be my disciples, because my disciples, I'm sending them into the world to save the lost, to save the hopeless. If you're going to be my disciples, you have to have a love for your enemy. They're the ones that need me. I've seen the mentality that's coming out of the mouths of Christians. We see the Muslims that are refugees that are coming into the United States, and I see the people who are declaring, you know, these people, we need to kill these people. We need to deport these people. We need to, they, they, there's a hatred there. Now, I understand there's certain things that the, our country is going to do to keep us safe. I understand that. What I don't understand is the mentality of people who are talking about hating and killing instead of how do we reach these people for Jesus Christ. I don't hear that enough. I understand keeping safe, but I don't hear enough Christians who are burdened for people who are dying and going to hell because they do not know the truth. Do we really love our enemies? Or do we feel justified because of our Western mentality in hating those that truly are our enemies? They hate us. They hate us. And God said, and you're going to have to somehow not hate them back. You're going to have to love them. And I just saw this morning, I was on the computer, and I saw a picture of, it must have been, I don't know, 60, 70, 80, 100 Muslims lined up, walking down into the river, that there is a revival going on in this, in this area where these Muslims are having a revelation of Jesus Christ going down into the river to get baptized because they got saved. You know what? That's what Jesus was talking about. That's what he's talking about. Evangelizing the world is taking the light into the darkness. And we lose sight of that somehow because we get all caught up in the political rhetoric. You might be thinking it certainly isn't easy being a Christian today. Well, it's never been easy being a Christian. From the very beginning, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow. Not once did Jesus ever suggest it was going to be fun and easy. He said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's not easy. But the payoff is to be the children of the Heavenly Father. The payoff is to see your enemy turned into your brother or sister. I went and campaigned. I used the word campaign for a church. I didn't campaign, vote for me buttons. I tried out for a church years ago. Vote for my wife. You get me in the package. That's, I tried out for a church. They had a question and answer session on Sunday night following the meeting. And then they would vote. And 
there was, there was a significant problem brewing in this church that I was not aware of. And the church was hotly divided over this topic, this issue, this scandal. So they asked me a few probing questions. Some had to do with trying to, to figure out how I would do things differently from the last pastor. One was, will you let us have home fellowship groups? Now, that's a loaded question because I don't know what historically has happened in this church with home fellowship groups. And so I got enough wisdom to know you don't just say, well, sure, I'll do that. Well, that might have been the thing that drove the last pastor out. It might have been the thing that's dividing the church. So you, you kind of say, no, I don't know anything about what's going on, but we'll talk about that. And then they asked other questions and two or three very pointed things trying to figure out what I was going to be. And pretty soon, one man, big mountain man, got up and walked out and hit the back swinging doors hard and left. He'd gotten very angry with the responses I'd given. And some of the people who knew him went over and talked to him. He was livid. He didn't like me. He didn't want me to be their pastor. Now I had me an enemy to love. I began to to work on him and draw him into a circle. There's an old poem that comes to my mind. Uh, They drew a circle that left me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But I love and I had the wit to win, for I drew a circle that took them in. So I drew my circle, and I drew that circle around them and began to love him. And before we left that church, he was my biggest fan. As a matter of fact, they were the first people and one, one of very few couples that have ever made the trip back from California here to the Midwest to see us and came and spent a couple of days with us. The man that marched out that hated me, didn't want me to be the pastor, drove from California just to see us. Loving your enemies. Loving those who hate you because you can't be God's children if you hate people that hate you. Even the pagans can do that. Even the pagans can love the lovely. But you know why I have to love the enemies? Because while we were yet sinners, while we were outcasts, while we were enemies of the cross, God loved us. That's why I have to love my enemies. Bow your heads.